Good morning. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. It was our second scripture reading this morning. Uh, Or if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Let me open us with a word of prayer as we uh, begin our time. Father, we uh, utterly need you and can do nothing apart from your spirit. We know that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty. And so be here with us as your word goes forth from Philippians. I pray that uh, as I preach, you would illuminate the word of God for the people of God, uh, for the sake of your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Freedom or shame? Freedom or shame? In, In many ways, this is the essential question for the whole of our Christian lives. So often, true believers get stuck in states of immaturity because they push away the freedom that is freely theirs from the Spirit of God and instead often accept the shame of their old lives, living in the cycle of shame, which eventually can lead to glorying in that shame. It's easy to get stuck in the old way of living, isn't it? Following the patterns of that come natural to us, of the flesh, that is, rather than the pattern of mature believers around us. The pattern of the flesh is is sort of like this, like walking on a busy street, jaywalking with your head down, with your head down, looking straight at the ground. You know you should look up, but you don't. So eventually you get hit with the shame that comes from foolish living. You see, lift, lifting up our heads, lifting up your head is freedom. That's maturity. You know what's coming your way? You're capable of discerning good and evil, wisdom and foolishness. If we get stuck looking down, eventually you will glory in your shame and in your immaturity and foolishness, and it becomes impossible to live in the freedom of the Spirit of God, where we experience the joy that comes from knowing that we are free from the guilt of sin and where we are also empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually make progress in the Christian life and become more and more mature and become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our big idea this morning is this. Walk with heavenly aim so your belly doesn't put you to shame. Walk with heavenly aim so your belly doesn't put you to shame. Our outline uh, looks like this. Follow maturity, verse 17. Reject uh, modernity. Uh, And I especially wanted to use that word because it's Catalina's favorite word, modernity. I said, I'm going to finally be able to use it in a sermon for you. Uh, So follow maturity, reject modernity, and look forward to our conformity. And so as we begin, let's draw our attention to to verse 17, where we will see that we are to follow maturity. Uh, The book of uh, Philippians was written when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and it's filled with exhortations to Christian maturity. And what does that look like? Well, a, a life rooted in the gospel, following the apostles' example. It looks like humility. It looks like joy, even in the face of trials. It looks like contentment. When we have little or when we have a lot, uh, it looks like uh, obedience. 
Uh, Paul, in our specific text, is contrasting two ways or patterns of life. You have the apostolic pattern, or the pattern of those who oppose the apostles. And similar to Jesus' message, it, it is black and white here. You either are with me or you are against me, following us or you're not. And notice, if Paul had, uh, has to admonish the church to follow his example, though, that implies that true Christians may struggle with this. They may struggle with following the apostles' example at times, like we all have. We are capable of living like those who oppose the cross of, the cross of Christ. And so we have to be reminded. In fact, we have to be reminded over and over and over again, as Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. He repeats to each congregation what they need to hear. And so surely you've heard it before, and it may seem rather simplistic, but we need not overlook its power, the power of what Paul the Apostle says here. Imitate me, and keep a close eye on those who do. In other words, join those who imitate us. Notice Paul tells the church to imitate him. And, and, and why is that? Is that because Paul in and of himself is so great? Uh, no, it's because he is living a life that is consumed with the gospel. He is living a life of service for the Lord Jesus Christ. And are only the apostles and elders called to live a life where they follow, follow Jesus uh, no matter what? Of course not. We are all called to this. And I, I've heard many uh, excuses in my life of discipling people. You don't know how many times I've had to tell guys at Bible studies and whatnot uh, that you need to be in church and you have your butt in a pew every Sunday. Uh, you need to read your Bible, you need to be in prayer, and you need to be devoted. But as Paul, it's no trouble for me to repeat the same things over and over. That's part of the, part of the gig. I, 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 I have told many people, imitate me as I follow Christ, as Paul has said. Something I have heard often in response is something like this, especially, um, I haven't heard this since I, I officially became a, a pastor here, but uh, so this was previous, but I'm sure I'll hear it again in the future. But I've heard something like this. Nick, you're, you're going to be a pastor. You're going to your seminary. You can't be my standard. Uh, I can't pray as much as you. I can't follow you as you follow Jesus. I can certainly not know as much. I'm certainly not called uh, to be as devoted as you. Right? Uh, and many people have used this as an excuse to not follow other mature believers. Um, this sort of thinking uh, that I have heard is is very unbiblical, as we can see in, in Paul's message here. But let's be fair to the question, where is it right, where is it wrong? If you, surely if you don't get paid to uh, study and pray, li like I do, uh, then okay, certainly I can and should be devoted more uh, to that which I get paid for as my singular vocation. But it is overly simplistic and silly to say, well, then you can't be my example. Shepherds are to lead from the front. That's the whole point. Being devoted to prayer, having a godly, mature Christian character, etc., is what we are to follow. And sure, that will look differently in a pastor from the, on the day-to-day. -day. It'll look differently in a lawyer. It'll look differently in a doctor. It'll look differently in a stay-at-home mother or a plumber. Uh, however, you can follow the example of those who have a different life circumstance than you, nonetheless. 
What we're called to is to follow maturity, wherever it is, wherever it is. And you are called to follow the example of your pastors and your elders. And this is what, in part, they are there, uh, that they are there for. And so follow us as we follow Christ. The point is, we all need mentors. You need to follow those who follow Jesus. Your community matters. Who you surround yourself with matters. Uh, Who you surround yourself with will have serious effects on who you are and who you are becoming as a person. And this doesn't just apply to those who are are young either. We often think that's a a young guy's thing. Uh, But no, it applies to any stage of life that you are in. The healthiest people that I know have people they can call on for help. Also have people who call them for help. And they also have peers. That is the healthiest possible person. One who has people above them that they can go to. People below them who call on them for help, and people right next to them. Having these three categories is important. Someone above you, someone standing with you, and someone below you. Also, it's important to have heroes in history. This comes easy to some of you, David, Matthew. Uh, But for a lot of us, this doesn't come that easy. Maybe history's boring to us. Uh, But we need mentors who are alive, certainly, not only dead, David, not only dead, uh, but, but certainly we need some dead ones too. We need some dead mentors as well, and they can be a huge help in the Christian life. There are men and women in history that have battled whatever you're battling in your life. And so I challenge you, grab a biography, find some dead heroes that you can glean insight from. And so follow maturity. Wherever you see Christian maturity, grasp it, very similarly as, uh, the, as uh, Solomon exclaims in Proverbs, get wisdom, get insight, right? Get maturity. It's there for the taking. That's why you're in a church. There's people all around you that are more mature than you in different areas. And so, go to those people. Young men, you don't always need to be around each other, right? But this also applies to the old dudes. You don't only need to be around other old dudes, but the young people need you as well. Supplies to the ladies in the same way. How unhelpful is it if you are always around peers who just validate your emotions and your perspective on things? And so we need to be around each generation, younger with old, older with young. Follow maturity wherever you see it. And in the same breath as we will now see, reject modernity. Reject modernity. And so let's draw our attention to verses 18 and 19. And let's notice what Paul says again here. Why should you follow the apostolic example of living? Why should you follow maturity? Verse 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their guise their belly, and they, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In many ways, that's a reason to follow the apostolic example. Because what's the other road look like? It's not very enjoyable. It it ends in destruction. Why would you want to walk down that road? I certainly don't. So Paul begins by stating that he often has warned them about enemies to the cross of Jesus, 
and because it is safe to warn them again, he, he does. There are many who hear the word, they may even profess faith for a time, but then oppose the faith, oppose the cross. See, the cross, my friends, is a stumbling block. It is the very center of our faith. And so those who oppose the faith can be characterized as those who oppose the cross. The cross is an offense to the unbelieving ear. It is repugnant. It is repulsive. And yet to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. It is joy to our ears, music to our bones, satisfaction to our bellies, peace in our hearts. But to those who oppose, it is distasteful gibberish, said the modern intellectual. And so take note also that Paul doesn't just say that he warns them of their opposition. But he warns them with tears. He warns them with tears. Why Why is that important? Why tears? Because those who oppose the cross are opposing the very thing that they chase and can't find. Those who oppose the cross chase and chase and chase satisfaction and fulfillment. They look their whole lives under every rock leaving no stone unturned and ultimately never find what they are looking for unless they look to the very cross that they have rejected and found offensive. And this, the apostle, is a tragedy. It's tragic that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, and yet many opposed that very salvation of the world, Jesus Christ. Their opposition will only lead to their ultimate destruction, which is exactly what he says. Where are they headed unless they repent? Their end is destruction. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He also answers a question, who is their God? Right? Those who oppose the cross, who is their God? The answer is their bellies. They're belly worshipers. They worship their bellies. In other words, they worship their own appetites. They worship their own appetites. Uh, and they look to themselves to satisfy them. This is pure hedonism. Pure hedonism. And I, I'm aware some of you may be unfamiliar with that term. The 18th century uh, philosopher Jeremy Bentham, uh, who himself could be defined as a, a hedonist, defines it this way. Listen to this. Nature has placed mankind under the governance of of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. That's hedonism. How I live my life, how I navigate the course of life, is based on either pain or pleasure. I want pleasure, so that's my ethic. I'm going with the pleasure. In, a, in Pauline language, people who do that are worshiping their bellies. They're worshiping their own bellies, their own appetites. Their God is their belly. We will seek pleasure at all costs, they say. Paul describes many who oppose the cross then as belly worshipers, which is essentially someone who looks inward for satisfaction and purpose. And, and when this happens, a person begins to glory in their shameful acts. And this is what Paul means by they glory in their shame. See, their minds are set on earthly things. Their minds are set on the dust. And they glory in their pleasure, in their own hedonic slavery, so to speak. And this is exactly what we read in our Ezekiel passage. God blessed Israel, cleaning her up, giving her fine gold and jewelry. And instead, she chose the earthly evil pleasures of the surrounding nations. 
And God compares her to a prostitute, to a harlot. But says clearly she has been actually worse than a prostitute because she scorns payment. You see, in this period of Israel's history, their God wasn't Yahweh. It was their own bellies. It was their own bellies. It's been interesting to see, I want you to follow me here, it's going somewhere, how the scientific, scientific uh, atheists uh, of the early 2000s, you could say, uh, like Richard Dawkins, many of you probably heard that name, maybe Christopher Hitchens, you might have heard this name. It's interesting to see how that perspective really has lost the cultural battle. Science, and when I say science, I, I mean uh, evolutionary materialism, the idea that all there is is what we can observe, uh, the world around us. There's no supernatural in, in any way, no soul, etc. Uh, it's interesting to see how this is losing the cultural battle. Uh, it seemed like they were uh, winning at some point, that these anti-Christian curmudgeons would, would win the day. Uh, but uh, who actually won the day in the short term? Who actually won the day? Well, anti-scientific hedonists, right, who place sexual identity and sexual gratification as the highest aim in life. Why did the so-called... You know, science then lose the battle. Well, why is it losing? Because when science becomes disconnected from the God who created the universe, when science becomes disconnected with the metaphysical claims that gave birth to science in the first place, this happens. The so-called Enlightenment thought that reason could and should be the highest authority in society. And what we have actually seen around us is that eventually... If this is the perspective that a society takes, that your own personal reason is, is essentially your God, your authority, that eventually will give way to your own personal appetites. And that's why the new atheists, as they were called, have failed. And these appetites replace all that was good in a society, which leads to that society's downfall. So you get rid of God as your highest authority and choose reason, eventually people's bellies will take over. And they will just chase their appetites over and over again. So, my friends, we, we must reject modernity. And certainly we have to reject the Enlightenment way of thinking, that all there is is our own reason in the material world. But we must also reject, as Paul is speaking of here, the belly-worshipping of our current culture. This is the society we are now living in. The God of our era is the appetites of the people. This is a dangerous place for Western civilization to be in, of course. If your God is your belly, let's think of some examples. What does this look like? If your God is your belly, you will seek short-term gratification over long-term success, of course, and fulfillment. A meaning, for example, marriage will be despised because there's no short-term gratification in, an, in a marriage and a long-term commitment. If your God is your belly, you won't ever discipline your children. Ever. Why? Because they will look at you sadly during the discipline. Uh, and the appetite seeker will prefer to live in chaos than ever see his kids sad and wait for the future fruit of that discipline. If your God is your belly, you will never gently rebuke your spouse. Never have any hard conversations with her or him. Right? You'll avoid any possible conflict for short-term peace that will surely quickly fade. If your God is your belly, you will follow your emotions. 
You will believe your thoughts above anything else. I thought it, therefore it must be true. If your God is your belly, you will think that because you had a thought, it's sovereign over my life and what I believe. Instead of understanding that your thoughts lie to you all the time, and they must be tested with the word of God. Our emotions, our feelings lie to us. God never lies. When you ask, why are so many people around us addicted to drugs or alcohol? Answer, their God is their belly. See, we abuse drugs and alcohol instead of staring at our own personal trauma. The darkness of our past and our current sins that we must confess, we don't want to look there. We don't want to look at our own darkness in the face and give it a name. That's a scary thing to do. Because we are scared that the dragon will win. But nothing good comes from short-term gratification. Good comes from faithfulness. For he who is the sum of all good is faithful. And you cannot reach the highest good without faithfulness. If you are a comfort seeker, a gratification seeker, and your goal isn't to be faithful regardless of the cost, then eventually you will be miserable. For life is not about instant gratification. Nothing good comes easy or for free. Catalina is really feeling this right now. Uh, with physical therapy for her hip, she has hip bursitis, as many of you know. It's very painful. And PT, in the short term, as I'm sure many of you know as well, uh, will bring more pain to the area in the short term. But that pain is good. It brings blood flow. It speeds up recovery time. It builds up the strength of whatever muscles and tendons are weak in that area in order to help this from ever happening again or to relieve some symptoms. If her God was her belly, she would never do physical therapy. She would avoid it. She would avoid it at all costs because it hurts in the moment. But instead, she sees the, fu the, the future, excuse me, fruit of PT. And so she does it. And so we have a question posed to us in our modern era. Hedonism, or a life that is structured in accordance with the way that God has structured the world. Hedonism or the cross, your belly or Christ. That's the big picture. But remember, how you answer that question trickles down to every area of your life. And so answering that question is also like answering this question. Your personal pleasure or a healthy home or healthy kids. The lie of hedonism or joy and peace. Certainly pleasure as your highest aim leads to destruction. And so my friends, we must reject modernity and instead we must follow maturity. And what we will now consider is another aspect uh, to the alternative uh, that our culture is giving to us, to modernity, which is we must look forward to our conformity. Paul now further contrasts in verses 20 through 21. Uh, he further contrasts those who follow their example with those who oppose the cross of Christ. And in, in doing so, he gives the congregation at Philippi a reason to not live like those who oppose the cross and who boast in their shameful acts. And what's the reason? Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. Listen again to what he says. But our citizenship 
is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, our end, as believers, is not destruction. Our end is in the world to come. We belong to God, which means that as sons of God, we belong to the same place where the Son of God is right now, heaven. And we await the precious day when he returns, and heaven and earth are made one once again. But even better than before the garden, we belong to a reality that even Adam and Eve didn't experience before the fall, something far greater but not only this, when we see Jesus, we will become like him. Look what, uh, consider what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 2. You probably know this one. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Amen. Once again, we see this vital doctrine of union with Christ. We have been so united to Christ that the proof of our future resurrection is Jesus' resurrection. For when he rose, you rose with him. And this not only has taken place in our hearts by faith, making you a new creation in the here and now, but also you can be sure that one day your physical body will be raised and transformed into the glorious body prepared for you for all of eternity with the triune God and his bride. We are being conformed to the image of our Savior, my friends. And this process will be complete on the day when he returns. But his resurrection isn't just proof of our resurrection. But it's also, it, it's an example of ours. Paul says in Romans that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead. In the same way, we will be declared to be the sons of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by our resurrection from the dead. You see, there's nothing, Christian, that Christ has that isn't yours. You are completely and utterly united to him. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is just as true and biblical to say, I have been resurrected with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who rose from the dead for me and is coming back to give me a glorious body like his. But there's another reason you should have a strong faith and assurance in the resurrection. Paul says the same power that enables Jesus to subject all things to himself is the same power by which you will be raised from the dead. Do you think Christ lacks power? Does he lack power? No. As we follow maturity, brothers and sisters, we must reject modernity because ultimately, you see, we don't belong to this generation or to this age, ultimately. We belong to the age to come. Recently, I heard this amazing story from a lady named Mariana Van Zeller. 
She is an investigative journalist. Uh, she is a she was a major part. I think her husband was the director of that pill mill documentary. Maybe probably a lot of people saw about Florida uh, in like 2008. Uh, but she's an investigative journalist. Does a lot of dangerous stuff, and she's she's one of those that really does risk her life. Uh, she was investigating the story in Niger, Africa. And the original story was about these gold mines there. Uh, but during her time there, there was a military coup. Uh, and the president had, and his family had been uh, deposed and kidnapped. And Mariana and her team were stuck there for nine days. Nine days, having no idea how they're going to get out of the situation. She was in the middle of a power struggle. Very dangerous. And she had no protection. Her protection team uh, left at that point. And Mariana was a U.S. citizen, also a citizen of uh, Portugal. And ultimately, you see, it was her citizenship in Portugal that helped her get out. But her citizenship was not in Niger. You see, she was in Niger. Niger wanted her to stay. But ultimately, she was rescued from this dangerous situation. You see, Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. You are here. You are here. But you belong to Christ, who is in the heavens. And he is coming again to make all things new. The difference is, you see, Christ isn't coming to rescue you out of the mess uh, and just leave the mess to itself. No, he's coming back to rescue you, and he's fixing the mess. He's making all things new. He's reversing the curse. He's coming back and wiping out all evil and death and suffering and making all things new. So, Christian, we must walk with heavenly aim. You may have heard that critique many times, that Christians can be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. And at times, a statement like that can keep us from looking forward to this conformity that is the resurrection of the dead when Christ returns. But that shouldn't happen. Remember, Paul doesn't say there are these enemies of the cross, but who really cares about them? We're going to heaven. Just focus on, on that and ignore those fools who cares right? no Paul is in tears telling them about how other human beings don't know Jesus their Messiah that actually there are many people who do not know the Lord and they think the cross is, their foolish, is foolishness rather than the power of God for salvation you see a heavenly minded person has the encouragement and strength to fight for the world that Christ came to save. If not, then that person's missing the whole point. Not living in accordance with the gospel. The whole reason we should engage with our surrounding culture, the whole reason we should evangelize, share our faith, be hospitable to, uh, to non-Christians, love the lost, fight against the lies of modernity, the whole reason we should do these things is exactly because we belong to the age to come. That's the foundation for doing these things. Because our citizenship is in heaven. We're the only ones with the power to change anything. Because the gospel we believe is the very power of God unto salvation. And we're the ones who possess that. So Christian, look to the heavens where Christ is. Look to the heavens where Christ sits at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning as king over all the universe, and know that he is returning. And remember what we read earlier, that, and this is very important to remember, because often, in the face of modernity, we think, how, how in the world are we going to win? How is Jesus going to win this? How in the world is this going to turn out favorable for us? 
Listen to the words of Jesus and have faith in them. Believe them with all your heart. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And remember, my friends, there's no other options here. Either you will recognize the reality that Christ is returning and that we are citizens of heaven. We are even said to be seated with Christ now in the heavenly places. Or we can let our bellies take over. We can follow our appetites into slavery to our own flesh and desires. Live with heavenly aim so your belly doesn't put you to shame. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do we want freedom or do we want shame? Let's pray, my friends. Holy Father, Lord, we so often have betrayed your graces. So often we look to the dust for that which can only be found in heaven. We look to our bellies instead of running to your bosom. We seek earthly joy instead of Christ's satisfaction. Instead of enduring the cross for the joy that has been set before us, we give weight and meaning to our appetites, thereby enduring their consequences and receiving nothing but their shame. Redeem us then, Lord, from the cycle of fleshly pleasures and pursuits that we so often find ourselves in. Rescue us from ourselves and from the destruction that our flesh brings to the heavenly joy that your grace offers. Hear us, gracious Father. In Jesus' name, amen.